I titled the sermon, God's Servant for Your Good. God's Servant for Your Good. And you, you might be surprised who we're talking about as we get into these verses. So let's do this. I want to start with a statement from our uh, statement of faith. Um, this is a statement on civil obedience, civil uh, government. We say this, we believe and teach that civil government is appointed by God for his purpose and for the good order of human society. Government officials are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed, except, there's an important except there, except in the things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, the only Lord of the conscience and the King of kings. So, that's a statement that we keep in our statement of faith. We think it's important to, uh, to have that in view as we gather together in unity. There are many passages that speak to that. Every single one will be in view today as we move through uh, these verses. Um, so let's just dive in. Let's just, let's just get after it here. First of all, verses 1 and 2 unpack for us the responsibility of, of the Christian in the society. So now, what is our responsibility, responsibility first and foremost? We're going to look then at the role of government uh, after that, verses 3 and 4. But first, let's start here, the responsibility of the Christian. Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Whose judgment? God's judgment. That's what is being said here. This is, this is an incredible set of verses. And I, I got to be honest, when you first read these verses, the instinct in, in many of us is to say, yeah, but... but but what about, right, you have these questions. But yeah, I know, I know, I know, Paul, but what about, and we can't go there yet. First, we just need to let these very clear, straightforward commands ring out in us. This is a call for every single believer to be submissive, to subject, to obey, that is, the governing authorities. It is a call that points the authority ultimately back to God. And it is important that we see this here. One of the things that we will struggle with if we do not have a category for God's um, sovereignty in all things, we are going to struggle with people who are in authority over us. And Paul is connecting the sovereignty of God with those that are in authority. Sometimes we say, well, but, you know, pastor, we're in a republic. We run the show here, the voters, the citizens of the United States. It is our authority that puts those people in office. And while that may be, there is an authority above the voter, and his name is the Lord Almighty. No one is in office, even by the vote of the populace, but that the Lord has put there. So ultimately, even in this republic that we know and participate in actively, we must acknowledge God is the one ultimately who puts leaders over us. Even though we have a hand in that process, He is the one that raises up. He is the one that brings down. He can, he can lift up and He can squash as He pleases. 
as Nebuchadnezzar, in his own experience, learned the hard way. So, submission to authority in our day, uh, in, in every day since Genesis chapter 3 occurred, is not the favorite topic of the sinful heart, really. We don't find our, our joy in coming up with all different ways that we can just submit to authorities. In fact, if you think of the instinct of the sinful heart, it is by default set against the authority of God. We don't want to submit. As is being illustrated right there. It's perfect timing. Oh man, we've all been there. Submission to authority is to the sinful heart not an instinct. Actually, the opposite is. We are rebels at heart by disposition. We are insubordinate. We are not those happy, submissive people left to ourselves. What's interesting is how the gospel redeems this. So think of this. Before the fall, before Genesis 3, before the rebellion, there was a very clear and established submission in view. This is God's good, ordered creation. Not only in the Trinity do you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit joyfully submitting the Son to the Father's will, the Spirit to the the Father and the Son's will, but also then in the first marriage. Adam is created. Eve is brought to be a helpmeet to her husband Adam, and the marriage is given. And, And we understand commentary then from the New Testament that the wife is called to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. Does that mean that the wife is less important? or valuable? No, absolutely not. It is equal in value, different in role and function, as God so rightly ordered his creation. Ephesians 5 is a very helpful passage for this. When we are brought to life in the power of the gospel through Christ, we are then given this opportunity to joyfully embrace God's good design. And so, in the family, the husband and wife, Uh, They are called to different roles. The husband is called to be the head of the home, the leader, servant, really, the head servant. And the wife is called to tuck under that leadership joyfully and submissively, not blindly, but intelligently and joyfully, propping up the leadership of her husband. Likewise, children are called to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right? There's a a blessing even given in in the commandment list. Right? So, you see the, the value of this, and in our day, you also see its opposite. <laughs> you see children railing against the authority of their parents, hating to tuck under and submit to their parents' authority. All kinds of chaos ensues. When a child disobeys his mom or dad, who is he disobeying? God. So it's connecting for us here. In fact, even Workers and, and, uh, and, and employers are making the list in Ephesians 5. So the way that we interact with our boss has implications for our joyful obedience to God himself, whether we tuck under and follow the lead, not blindly, certainly not in sin, but there are positions that we are called to, positions of authority and calls to submit to that authority. Then in the church, similarly, In Hebrews, it calls the the people of the church to submit to their leaders, right? To obey the leaders. Now, the leaders, they are not the heads of the church. Christ is the head of the church. 
And he has under shepherds who are called to shepherd the church in Christ's likeness. But the church then is joyfully to tuck under their shepherds, the under shepherds, as we all together follow Christ, submitting to him. And then here, the government. So escape submission, not likely. Not if you're a Christian. Learn to enjoy joyfully embracing submission to authorities that God has placed over us. We will do so perfectly in eternity and imperfectly until then, until the Lord returns, but our desire is that we be a submissive people. Now, the other thing I want to say right out of the gate is um, if you're waiting for a perfect government before you'll joyfully submit and tuck under their governing authority, you'll be waiting until the King of Kings returns. There is only one form of government that is without sin and perfect. It is coming. Let's be clear. The King is coming. But until that day, there is no perfect government. Let's just say, every government is corrupt and has always been from the beginning when the fall occurred. So even corrupt governments are better than anarchy. We don't want no law. We don't want no form of governing authority. We don't want anarchy when everyone does what is right in their own minds. In fact, we tasted just a little glimpse of this when the police were being defunded, remember? And the riots were at full swing and it just felt like our society was about to fall apart and gun sales went through the roof. Why? Because there was great fear. Who's going to protect us? Anarchy is not a win for anybody. The weak in the society are the most vulnerable. The people who collect the most power, maybe through influence or whatever, become those who are most uh, horrific offenders in a situation of anarchy. So imperfect government, as we are under here, better than no government at all. And I just got to say, we, we've got to be careful with the way that we respond to these verses. We are blessed. We are incredibly blessed to be here under the government that we have. Think of how these verses would land if you're studying them in, let's say, North Korea, right? Or China. Or, I don't know, pick, I mean, pick some of the governments that Christians have read these verses and sought to obey them under, it leaves us with very little complaint at the end of the day. God is so gracious. These freedoms are precious that we have. We should never take them for granted. We are a blessed people. So let us leverage that blessing to a greater obedience in the days in which we find ourselves. So let's begin by obedience to God and civil obedience before we address civil disobedience. First off, obedience to God calls it very clear. That let every person, every person. Now, that includes those who are called to enforce the laws, right? And it, one of the things that just really irks people is when people say, well, everyone has to wear a mask. And then they go to the Super Bowl and they sit in a really expensive box and they don't wear a mask. Well, that's a problem. So those who enforce, those who come up with laws, are not above the law. Let every person, but especially here believers, he's addressing believers, 
be subject to governing authorities. He points back to the authority of God. If you resist authority, you're resisting God. And you are inviting the judgment of God even through the legal system that he has placed over you. So the absolute sovereignty of God. I I told the first service, I, I feel like if you can make it through the book of Romans without a category in your theology for the absolute sovereignty of God, then I feel like I have failed you greatly. This book equips us over and over and over with the the foundation of reality of a God who is indeed absolutely sovereign over every place, in every way, in every time. That's who he is. It's the godness of God. So that you could never say, well, that person is an authority by accident. You see what I mean? We may not like it. We may not have voted for it. They may have had a power grab, they may have manipulated the election, but guess what? You can't overrule the absolute sovereignty of God. So if they're in position of authority over me, who put them there ultimately? God did. God did. He is the one who puts rulers in place, and we are called to submit to those rulers. That includes presidents. That includes presidents. That includes senators, representatives. And then I love these government uh, abbreviations. We got IRS. Ooh. We got FBI. We got the DNR. We got the DMV. Oh, you're hurting me now, preacher. We got judges. Our legal system is taking a beating lately, it feels like. But... Even those judges that are given a bench, they are placed there ultimately by God. Now, here's what we've got to realize. God may be blessing, and at the same time, in a different place, he may be judging. We have county and city officials. We have state and local police, border patrol, game warden. These are people. The the legal system has a face, the people. You've got the, uh, uh, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and then the judicial branch. And, 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 and all of that carries with it the enforcement then that meets us in the real world day by day. One of the things that was most grievous for me was to watch this campaign to defund the police. As if somehow we could scapegoat the law enforcement for all the problems that we were witnessing on display. That was lunacy. And as believers, I think it's important that we say not only do we want to esteem law enforcement as a whole, but we want to show honor and gratitude for those who are given the incredibly tough task of upholding the law. I, I for one, am extremely proud of those that God has raised up in our community. We have an incredible group of law enforcement people. Guess what? They're all sinners too. They are all called to obey the law as well. But we should esteem and honor and respect those who do that service. And frankly, I mean, they put their lives on the line in a way that you don't have to. And so as believers, we should value that as well. 
I'm just really grateful for the work that, uh, that, that many of the people in our church do. We've got a number of law enforcement folks in our church, and I'm grateful for them. Now, think of how many laws you live under, Christian. There's national and state laws, and what a catch-all that is. That's a massive amount of law that you live under. Then, zero it in a little. City ordinances. Have you ever just Googled up the, the litany of city ordinances that you live under? When we moved to Linden, I had to do this a lot because there was, you know, zoning stuff and I wanted to build a shed. And, and so I found that page and I'm like, wow, look at all this stuff. What is your attitude when you come up against city ordinances, building codes and permits, business regulations, burn bans? Oh, this one. Oof. I'm a guy that likes a good fire whenever I want to build it, right? And, and, and the fact that I would have to call in to find out if there's a burn ban, that's just always been a struggle for me. Emissions and environmental laws. Agree with them or not, if they're laws, they're laws. Safety regulations. Traffic laws. Uh-oh. Careful now. One guy said, Pastor, you were meddling this morning. <laughs> You're... You're, you're going in there way too close to home. Traffic laws. Let me just mention this. I, for the last week, I have done a much better job as I've been studying this text, being super convicted that I need to be better at obeying the speed limit. Okay? Now, don't, the whole thing about this sermon is not the speed limit, but let's be clear. If you can pretty consistently hit a five-over, you can also pretty consistently do the speed limit. You know, don't tell me that five over is the law. It, it's the law to do the speed limit. So in my car, it's, uh, it's, a, it's digital, right? So I know if I'm speeding. My conscience is there. And I, what I did this past week is I tried my best to dial it in. Now, again, don't be legalistic. We don't want to overstate this, but we're Christians. This is part of what we're called to do. It's be those that embrace the law of the land. And so I've fought hard to, to do a little better job of that. And, I, and my family can attest, I, I don't often do that good of job with the speed limit. But I can say this, I wasn't late to any of my meetings except for one, and that was for other reasons. And secondly, I got some killer good gas mileage this week. It was awesome. It was way better. And I will say, I enjoyed my drive a little more because I wasn't watching to make sure Luke didn't pull me over, you know. <laughs> All right. Registration tabs. I put this on there. Uh, Jenny pulled into the oil change place a couple weeks ago and Colin pulled in behind her in his squad car. And uh, he didn't have his lights on or anything. But uh, he gets out and Jenny's like, hey, Colin, good to see you. And they're shooting the breeze. And and he just kind of works into the conversation. Hey, just wanted to let you know that your tabs are almost a year past due. And her jaw hit the floor, and she's like, I had no idea. I didn't even know. And somehow they didn't, they didn't notify us. We, we didn't get any notification. Our tabs are way overdue. So I'm here to attest by the end of the day, we had new tabs on the car. We were legal again. Pastor's wife just shredding it up around town with expired tabs. <laughs> That's how rumors are started. 
All right. Colin was very gracious. We deserved a ticket. We just didn't know it. So let's move in a little closer. Tax laws. Pay the taxes. It's hard to figure out what are the tax laws because they're constantly changing. But we are responsible. We're going to see more on that as the verses unfold. Drug laws. Gun laws. Oh, man. Don't be infringing on my Second Amendment, Pastor. Listen, there's more about this coming as well, but I'll just say this. Gun laws are gun laws. And we need to be respectful and we need to be those that, that do everything possible to abide by the laws of the land. And that includes when it comes to your favorite firearms. Hunting and fishing. It means that if you're on the lake and you've caught your limit, but the fish just keep wanting to jump into your boat. It means that a few fish need to start going out of your boat because you're a Christian. Because you're a Christian. And if you bring home more fish than you were supposed to, even if you're not caught, you sin against God in breaking your limit of fish. That's what Paul is pushing us to. He's like, listen, guys, it's not just about what can you get away with. It's about how will you honor Christ as Lord and the authorities He's put in place in your life. This gets close to home. Resisting authority is resisting God. That's what it boils down to. And uh, <laughs> we don't want to be those that are constantly pushing against those who are in authority in our lives. Now, sinfully, that may be our inclination, but we are called to fight sin and replace it with righteousness and obedience to God. So what is the disposition of the Christian to be in the society? I remember when the tea party was a big thing and, and we were going to take everything back and yeah, and, and everybody was getting stirred up and there was a tone that took place, a tone. And while I was all for you know, voting and putting God-honoring politicians in office, uh, there was a tone that was totally inconsistent with the fruit of the Spirit. And I remember feeling convicted for the need to just put a bit of a check out there. What kind of tone should the church in the land be known for? This is important for us. Listen to this just blast of Scripture and catch the tone. In addition to our verses, here are the three other passages that call us to submission. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Don't, don't miss that. For the Lord's glory, for His sake, be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by Him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, right? Oh, how easy it is to justify our sin. Well, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I don't agree with this, this, and this. Don't use your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Honor everyone, everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and then this one is mind-blowing. 
honor the emperor. Show honor to the office. Even if you struggle with his policies, even if you struggle with his moral fiber, even if you struggle with the things that he does, you are to show esteem because his authority is derived from the sovereign who is your king, your Lord, your sovereign. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. That is, Christians are to be this way. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. Now, let me just clarify. That doesn't mean we can't speak what is true, but we are called to speak what is true in love. In love. But we are not ever called to speak evil of anyone. We are called to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Oh, this is good. This stands out in our day, doesn't it, Christian? Imagine a gentle politician. Imagine a man who would stand and proclaim what is solid and of substance and right and righteous without having to be down in the gutter. Who are we to be in the culture. And he finishes to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We are to show perfect courtesy. Man, this is a tone that we're starting to catch here. Now listen to this one. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now he's going to demonstrate what the all is. All people, for kings, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There's your goal, Christian. What is our aim point as believers in the society? Peaceful and quiet life. Dignified and godly. This is good and it pleases God. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who, by the way, desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is he saying? He's saying God wants us to pray for those who are in the highest levels of authority because there is a desire there for salvation just as there is a desire for the pauper and the beggar. Every level, every kind of people, regardless of the amount of authority that they have, the gospel is the aim point. One of the reasons Paul wanted to go to Rome is because he wanted to proclaim the gospel to the highest, most powerful, you know, the, the, the power elite of the world. They need Jesus too. They need the gospel. Our longing is that God would save people from all walks of life, not just the people who vote like us. That He would use us and our prayers to reach every layer of society. All people that is our target point so we are to be a god-centered people people uh, godly and dignified peaceful law-abiding a praying people and i would add this a participating people there is no good reason for you not to participate in the elections in the voting work if you're waiting for a perfect man to come to be president, you'll be waiting for a while. We need to be a people who participate, who vote. More Christians should vote. 
God has given us in this nation an incredible opportunity to leverage, to be a part of the process. How many nations around the world with Christians in them do not offer that? They would look at us and say, you didn't vote? Are you kidding me? I've never not voted in my entire life. Never. I can't, I, I can't, can't fathom that. We must be a people who vote. Participate. God's given us a gift of this incredible land. But as we are participating, what's primary? Who, what's the kingdom we want to build above all other kingdoms? Is it the United States of America? No. It's the kingdom of God. The gospel is always primary. We are Christian Americans, not ever the opposite. We are not American Christians. We are Christian Americans. We have a homeland, but we have a kingdom. And that is the focal point and the aim point of our lives. So there's our tone. That's, that's what we're called to as believers. Now, how about government? How about government? Well, a little bit on the role of government here in our interaction with them. Paul goes on, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He is God's servant for your good. Now, what's funny is when you're driving along and you see these, these people in front of you slam on their brakes, you realize what's happening. Well, there's probably a, a squad car parked at a 90 degree, just scanning with the radar gun, you know, and you guys probably see this all the time, uh, policemen. It's like people are just cruising along, just ripping, and all of a sudden, oh, policemen, you know, the nose goes down, they're slowing down. You know what's great? Is when you're walking in step with the law, and you see a squad car, and you don't have to tap the brakes. There's no fear in obedience. You don't have to be afraid. In fact, Man, if we could get to this more. It, when you see a police officer, you should feel actually the opposite of fear. You should feel increasingly safe. I, I love it when I pull into the church and there's a sheriff parked in our parking lot just keeping an eye on things. I always thank him. Thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate your work. That, we, that, that, that people would feel unsafe in police presence may indeed mean that there's activity happening there that should Make them uh, be afraid. For those who obey the law, there's no reason to fear. He is God's servant for your good. God has ordained this authority in your life for your good. So, obey the law, and there's no reason to fear. But if you do wrong, Paul says, be afraid. <laughs> it's like... Um, if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. Now, here's a reference to all kinds of things. Number one, there should be and there are consequences for law-breaking. This is like basic good versus evil 101. It's the nature of God. He is a righteous and just and wrath-giving God. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. That is the authority. God has given authority of the sword, which means capital punishment is a biblical concept. We could track that back out of the book of Genesis, chapter 9. If you take a life, then 
those that God has sovereignly placed in authority over you may indeed take your life as a result. That's going to cause you to stop and think before you take a life, before you murder. There is a difference between murder and justice. Capital punishment is biblical. It should be practiced carefully, but systematically and consistently, it helps deter crime. Consequences are important to have in view. One of the struggles I've had recently is watching the, 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 the justice system kind of be gutted of its teeth. If criminals don't face consequence, then they're not going to really care about breaking the law. It's part of God's ordination of consequence. And let's be clear, if I have broken the law and I have been um, caught as a lawbreaker, part of my repentance from that sin against God and against the, the, the authorities is an embrace of consequence. To say, I did this, it was wrong, I will bear the due consequence of my actions. I will do the time. I will do what needs to be done to reconcile and, and, and pay recompense. That's part of repentance. He is the servant of God. The word there, servant of God, the word is, is deacon. It's the same word for deacon. Think of this. Deacons in the church who serve. Now, obviously, this is a different role. It's not the same. But those who are called to enforce the law and authority over you are, are that connected to the function of God's authority in your life. They are serving God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Wow. God's wrath and the wrongdoer meet in this. Hmm. So the role of government, to put it simply, is this. Pursue and punish those who do evil and protect and praise or esteem those who do good. Very simple. In fact, we don't need a lot of government to get that done. One of the reasons I'm a fan of small government. Not just because I like to vote a certain way, but because I think the work of government is actually simpler than one would think. Pursue and punish the evildoers. Protect and praise those who do good. Kevin DeYoung put it this way. Government is at its best when its citizens can be confident of two things. First, that no matter who I am, what I look like, where I'm from, how much money I have, or how many connections I have, that if I am violent toward my neighbor or toward his property, I will be punished. Straightforward, very simple. Second, that no matter who I am, what I look like, where I'm from, how much money I have, or what my connections are, if I follow the rules and do what is good, I can get ahead or at least be left alone. That's a pretty good sum up, isn't it? Here's the challenge of this. <laughs> Who determines what is good and bad? Because at the very core of this is punishing what is evil and promoting and, and, and rewarding, as it were, protecting what is good. Who is the one that establishes what is evil and what is good? Note this, in, in all of these passages, it is not spoken that might makes right. Those who have a derived authority are held accountable for the way they leverage that authority to the God who has bestowed that authority on them. What are they held accountable specifically for? How they handled what was good and right 
versus what was wrong and evil and corrupt. God is the one who establishes, who defines what is good and evil. And he does so, we got to be clear, he does so for every culture, in every place, at every time. The word of God is the clarity that the government is held to account for. Paul has the Ten Commandments in view at, at, at its basic level. The Ten Commandments are in view. You know that because if you look down at verse 9, he begins to list some of them. He's pointing us to the moral law of God. Well, what is good? Look to God. Listen to His commandments. What is evil? Look to God. Listen to His commandments. It's not unclear. Even the conscience of sinners who don't know Christ is still Oh, oh, you know, testifying to those things, even though it's suppressed. So a government that begins to reward the evildoer and punish the one who does good, they will answer to God. They are accountable to God. And it ties in with the verses we covered last week. Leave it to the wrath of God. Do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Ultimately, those corrupt governments who promote evil and and punish good, they will answer to God, those people. It's a very serious thing to misuse authority in that way. And it leads us then to civil disobedience, a topic that is really important for us to understand, a topic really that we had to confront in very tangible ways over the past couple years because of what was coming out of Olympia and from the Capitol. The high priest questioned them, that is disciples, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Don't proclaim the gospel, they said. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That is the blood of Jesus Christ, by the way, whom these people killed, murdered. Peter and the apostles answered very simply, we must obey God rather than man. You gave us a command that we simply cannot, we cannot obey. We will not submit to that command because we are called to proclaim. Jesus himself commissioned us to do so, and that is exactly what we're going to do. We are going to fill this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there are situations, this is just one of many throughout Scripture, where we see believers standing against the call of the governing authorities that are over them and disobeying them, blatantly so. Now, in a, in a spirit, not of mockery or of just uh, like, we're going to teach you. No, it's not like that. It is, we respectfully disobey. We're going to do what God has called us to do. So the attitude of the way we disobey is important. They, they handle that really well in that book. So five exceptions to civil obedience. Number one, if the government or the authorities call you, believer, to do what is wrong, what God makes clear, this is wrong, this is unacceptable, and they say you have to do this. You have to say that homosexuality is, is, is good and not a sin. And we say, I cannot and I will not do that. You have to recant of what you have spoken about this or that. If it's in the Bible, I cannot and will not recant. I mean, think of Martin Luther, who stood before the council 
I will not recant. Or, number two, in order to stop doing what is right. You cannot gather your church for worship. You cannot sing. You cannot take communion, the Lord's Supper together. And on, and you, you have to spread out. You have to do these things and that thing. Listen, at the end of the day, God has not given the state that authority to meddle, as it were, with the church. That is, clear commands of God are to be obeyed, regardless of what the state or the governing authorities decide. We wrestled with this for a while as elders. We were actually, before the mandate came, we closed the doors of our church. We didn't know what we were up against, but we wanted to be extra cautious and careful, and so we shut down before the shutdown was enacted. And we stayed closed for eight weeks while we were assessing, what is this? What is happening? During those eight weeks, we began to see unbelievable panic and fear set in upon this nation. And neighbors on Sunday mornings who would come to our church would find our doors closed. The hope of the nations was not being proclaimed to those who most needed it, the unsaved. The church is a gathering. We are called to gather together. To not forsake the gathering, as is the habit of some. We are called by Christ to do exactly as we did this morning. Partake of the supper of the Lord. We are called to sing. That is a command of Scripture all over the place it's commanded. And so we obey God rather than man. We opened in phase one. God gave us unity among the elders. We opened our doors. Many of you came. You were there. And by the grace of God, we were left alone. Not everybody was left alone in that. This man who wrote this book in Canada, James Coates, he went to jail. And there was tremendous challenges that he faced. Some have assessed fines, like crazy amounts of fines. MacArthur had to go to court with the state of California in order to keep his doors open. God was so gracious and his favor was clear. Obey the Lord, even though it costs you. It may cost us jail time. It may cost us our lives. Friends, we stand on the shoulders of those who have died at the hands of governing authorities in obedience to God. Come what may, we must obey God in these things. If there is an order given that contradicts another level of civil authority, we have a right then to appeal to a higher authority. This, this is where the justice system is very helpful. It's right for us to say, no, this, this directive here is in total contradiction to this one over here. That's why I love the Second Amendment. And I think we have a lot to stand on legally when it comes to that amendment. So uh, there, are, there are things that we can, can weigh and, and have in view, and if need be, hire a lawyer and go to court to fight for. But even there... The attitude is important. The way that we do that, our disposition in that is one that is respectful, honoring of the system, not grinding and grumbling. And I'm going to show you we're insubmissive people. We Christians, we don't submit to you. We serve no sovereign here. You remember the echo of that? Jesus is Lord and His authority is on display in these institutions. He has put over us. In order to stay silent in the face of evil, think of John the Baptist. It cost him his head. And he spoke 
what was true, words of truth and conviction. Think of Jesus, who was unafraid to say what was true and right. He loved people even when they responded with murderous threats and eventually crucified him. Nearly all of the apostles were killed. Violent deaths. The apostle John lived out his days, exiled to Patmos. Friends, th- that's our legacy. These are our people. So we, we, need, to, we need to understand and count the cost. This may cost us greatly. If we need to go underground, we go, we, we go underground. We do what we need to do to obey the Lord. This last one was a surprise to me. It's built out in the book. I, I highly commend you. Uh, grab, did I mention the, the, the sum up that Jenny wrote, the copy? Make sure and get that on your way out. Uh, it's very helpful. Get that book. Uh, it, the order to turn yourself in is something that we can disobey. Um, and, and it's actually shown all over the place in the scriptures. So you have uh, a place and a time to carefully, respectfully, in, in an honorable way, flee if need be. And uh, so I'll let them build that out for you on the handout. There's more there. But there's at least five exceptions that can help us understand um, how and when we should indeed disobey the authorities that are placed over us by God. Number five, uh, verse five, the freedom of a clear conscience. The freedom of a clear conscience. I want to pick up in verse four because Paul continues this flow. Listen to how he says this. For he, that is the civil authority that's over you, is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but then he adds in another layer, but also for the sake of conscience. And this is when it just ratchets through the roof. Okay, this this is incredible. For the believer, let's just a, a, a quick little word on what is a conscience. The conscience is empowered now by the Holy Spirit who works in connection with our spirit to convict us of sin. And this conscience, which once was dulled by depravity, is now sharpened by the Word of God and the Spirit of God such that when we sin, He lets us know. He pricks our conscience. He stirs us. So where the long arm of the law cannot reach, the eyes of the Lord can You're on that lake all by yourself. You see the parking lot. There is no one else out there. You can catch as many fish as you want. And you know the limit. You know the license you have. And the fish just keep coming. And you say, well, it's a good day. I can get away with it. No one will know. But Christian, you forget the most important person in the universe. He knows and your conviction should fall sharp in that moment. My spirit should be weighed down. I am sinning not just against the authority of the land. I sin against God. So for the sake of conscience, be free, Christian. Be free. What a wonderful thing to go for a long drive with a clear conscience, not waiting to stomp on the brakes so you don't get a ticket. Just drive. Be free. Follow the laws. Obey the Lord. Right? This is such a cool thing. It, it, it is a wonderful thing to live in the freedom of a clear conscience. 
There's a number of passages that call us to this. I think this is a, a wonderful reference to it. And it is a, 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 just a good way to live. Close with these verses, verses 6 and 7, just in case the Word of God has not meddled enough in your life to, to stir the pot and give you plenty to think about this afternoon. Let's close with the rightness of rendering. The rightness of rendering. Paul says, For because of this also you pay taxes, because of the wrath that you face if you don't, and the conscience and conviction of God that you face if you don't, because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. They're ministering the authority that God has bestowed on them, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, Paul says. Matter-of-factly, clearly. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. You may struggle with the man, but the office deserves respect. And so we speak respectfully of the person who is in the Oval Office. We speak respectfully of those in positions of authority over us because at the end of the day, my words need to point to somebody other than me. They need to point to the God who is sovereign over all. Look at that list. Taxes. Revenue. If you're an employer and someone works for you, pay them. Pay them what you said you would. Don't withhold that money. Make sure you pay your employees. Respect and honor. A word about taxes here from Jesus in Mark. The Pharisees and some Herodians came and they wanted to trap Jesus. And they came with this perfect question. It was a genius trap. They butter him up first to try to, like you could butter up Jesus. I mean, how, how crazy is that? Oh, teacher, we know that you are true. And you, you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but you teach, you truly teach the way of God. Okay? And, and Jesus is probably like, oh, okay. And then here comes the trap. You can almost hear the sneering in the, in the background. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now this is brilliant because what they want to do is they want to turn Jesus into a lawbreaker. And if he says, absolutely you should pay them, he knows that the people, uh, they, they know the people will turn on him because this, this tax, it was a poll tax, it was fairly new in Jesus' day, and it was a denarius, and on the denarius was the face of the Caesar, but also an inscription, and this is where it really ratchets up. The inscription refers to Caesar as divine. It's God, basically. And the Jews hated this tax. They felt like if they were to pay this tax, they were bowing and worshiping Caesar as God. And so they justified not paying the tax because they said we have to worship only God. But if Jesus says, hey, don't pay the tax, then the leaders have cause to label him a, a disruptor of Rome and a problem and crucify him right away. So this is Jesus' perfect response. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. I'll take the challenge, as it were. Let me look at it. So they brought him one. Now he knows whose face is on it. But he looks at it and he says, 
Whose likeness and inscription is this? Just like Jesus always taught with questions. Jesus loved questions. He's teaching them. They say, Caesar's. Jesus says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now this says volumes about how we think about paying taxes in a fallen land. Give Caesar what carries his face. Give him his money. If he says, give me my money, then you give him his money. But don't give him your worship. He is not God. Give God your worship and give Caesar the tax. It was a genius answer, and he silenced him again. Not long after this, they gave up trying to trap Jesus because every time they did, they looked like fools. If Jesus can say to those who were in his situation under Rome, if Paul can write this to the Roman church in Rome, then we, my friends, we should pay our taxes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and always to God what is God's. So our response this morning. This is a very practical sermon. It's one that we can put to work in all kinds of different ways, but I just want to call us to this tone, this, this demeanor, this presentation of who we are in society. We are God-centered people. We are to be godly and dignified, a peaceful and law-abiding people. We are to be praying and participating. All of these should be true of us this week, proclaiming the truth of God, but in love. We don't just stand against the horrors of evil. Yes, we do. We stand against them, but in love. In love. And we are a people willing to suffer and even die for the sake of the name. Our greatest allegiance is not to the United States of America. Let me say that again. Our greatest allegiance is not to the United States of America. It is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one to whom all will give an account. He is the one to whom we bow our knee. And it is His authority that is chosen to set in place over us every earthly authority. And so we honor Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You for these verses. We as much as they're hard for us, we need them. We have the echo of sin, this rebellion, this disposition still that we fight to push against authority, to, to reject the laws of the land in which we live, to, to, to try to pretend as if we can make our own laws or we know better or we disagree because of this or that. We pray that you would make us a people more consistent with you in, the, in these commands that our disposition in this land would be those of, 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 of a godly and upright people, people that are concerned with obedience, both to the laws of the land, but ultimately, Lord, to You. We want to honor You as supreme above all else, and in that we pray for wisdom about obedience to the laws of civil authorities in our lives and, at times, civil disobedience to them as well. Find us faithful, Lord. Give us wisdom in all the questions that flow out of these things and ultimately be glorified in our lives and, if need be, in our suffering and, if need be, in our death. We esteem you above all else. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.